everybody. Welcome to Rappin' with Reef Bum. I'm your host, Keith Berkelhammer, and today I have the pleasure of welcoming Dana Riddle to the show. Dana is a very well-known uh, person in the reef keeping hobby and has written numerous articles for publications such as Seascope, Marine Fish Monthly, Bama Magazine, the Masna Newsletter, Advanced Aquarist, Planted Aquaria, Manhattan Reefs, and others. He has also published a book in 1995 called The Captive Reef, and in 2011, he was awarded Masna's Aquarius of the Year. He has also spoken at numerous conferences and is currently an expert contributor at Reef to Reef with his own forum called Aquarium Lighting by Dana Riddle. Dana, hey man, welcome to the show. Glad to have you. Hi. Yeah, thanks for having me. My pleasure. So, <clears throat> folks, this is a real treat to have Dana on the show, and I encourage you to ask questions. Dana is, um, as I mentioned, he's an expert in the field, and and certainly at Reef to Reef with his own aquarium lighting forum, I'm sure he gets uh, tons of questions throughout uh, the days, weeks, and months. And and but but feel free, you know, this is a great opportunity to ask away. So I've got I've got plenty of questions for you there, Dana, and. Um, I'll um, I'll try to moderate the uh, the comments and, and sneak in some some questions from the audience. But you know I always like to kind of start off the show with a question with my guests in terms of like how you know you got involved in the hobby. So so Dana, why don't for those of you that uh, that don't know Dana, what what why don't you tell us your story? Well, it all started when I was a kid, as most things do. Uh, my grandparents lived in New Hampshire, and uh, we would visit every other year and uh, one year we made a visit to the rocky tide pools in Maine and I was just flabbergasted with what I saw it was colorful starfish and some algae and fish and um, so that was quite the inspiration and then we would also go to Florida uh, Panama City um, during uh, some of the summers and uh, the seagrass beds there were full of seahorses and pipefish and all that sort of thing. So uh, I really developed a love for the ocean. And uh, my brother got a, an aquarium for Christmas one year, and he lost interest in it, and I inherited it. So uh, that's where it started. So you, you had um, really gotten into technology at an early stage of your reef keeping um... I don't want to call it a career, but your your fascination with the hobby. Um, so, and and I also read that um, you were one of the first folks in the U.S. in terms of a hobbyist to invest in a um, in a par meter. And um, you know, so why did you invest in a par meter at that point in time, early on? You know, when nobody else was using par meters. Um, I got into the hobby in the late '80s. And there wasn't a whole lot of information available. Uh, there was Peter Wilkins' books, um, but not a lot of information. So, um, you know, we were relying mostly on the Europeans for uh, their advice on how to keep a reef tank. And um, George Smith's articles in FAMA uh, really piqued my interest uh, as well. So. Uh, but there wasn't anything about the biology uh, of the corals. You know, uh, there were, it was uh, a lot of reactors and uh, wet-dry filters and that sort of thing on the market. And, but there was very little about lighting. So I really bit the bullet and purchased a $1,500 PAR meter and uh, started doing some of the research. Uh, and I would go down to some of the universities in Atlanta and copy every journal article that I could find about lighting. And uh, so that's how that got started. And uh, I also worked with Pete Mohan, who was at uh, SeaWorld in Ohio at the time. I visited him. And uh, we, as far as I know, I was the only one private, private individual in the U.S. that had a PAR meter. And uh, I think that Pete was the only professional aquarist that had one. So we corresponded a lot, compared notes, and uh, things started to fall into place after a while. What did you, um, so what did you learn with that early use of the PAR meter with the, with the tanks? Um, 
Well, like I said, I, I was copying every article I could find, and there were uh, comments about compensation points, which were minimum amounts of light that the zooxanthellae needed. And then there was the saturation points, which was uh, where uh, photosynthesis was starting to redline and, you know, more light wasn't going to promote more photosynthesis. So there, there was a little bit of information there. Um, so I started looking at, uh, you know, actually how much light intensity, uh, you know, the metal halides could make and the, the fluorescent tubes and all that stuff. And um, uh, there, there again, uh, you know, that's really an ongoing project. Uh, there's still a lot we don't know. <coughs> Excuse me. So you, um, you've accumulated a, a few more pieces of equipment over the years, right? Yes. <laughs> you've got, uh -huh. you've got a, you've got a lab actually in, in your house. Yeah, I, I do. It's a 600 square foot lab, and I've got two two aquariums that I use for uh, <clears throat> for testing lights. And uh, then I've got a 120-gallon tank. Excuse me just a moment. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. I've got a little tickle in my throat. Let me yeah. get some water. Yeah, yeah. Folks, while, uh, while Dan is getting some water, I just want to remind you that um, it's a great opportunity to ask some questions and, and um, you know, so put them in the, uh, in the comments, in the chat there, and, and we'll take a look at them and, and feed them to, uh, to Dan. Sorry about but, that. Yep. All right. We're yeah, back. I, I should know to have some bottled water here with me. <laughs> Go ahead, Dana. Um, uh, where were we? I'm sorry. You were talking about your, uh, your lab. Oh, oh yeah, the, the lab. I've got a 120-gallon reef, um, and I'm <clears throat> growing the corals out, and hopefully I can get some experiments going uh, uh, soon as soon as these fragments grow out and there's a usable size. Um, but I, I do have a considerable amount of money invested in laboratory equipment. Um, uh, I've got a collection of PAR meters, and uh, I've, I've got a PAM fluorometer, which enables me to measure rates of photosynthesis in the zooxanthellae under different lighting conditions. And I also have a chlorophyll meter uh, that is a point-and-shoot device, uh, and I can measure the responses of uh, the zooxanthellae's chlorophyll content or densities um, when they're exposed to different sorts of light. So that's, uh, that's the gist of what's going on down there right now. Um, I wish the corals would grow a little faster. I'm a little anxious to get started, but I'm doing the best I can. So, you know, obviously there's a lot of things to talk about on, uh, about aquarium lighting. And, um, you know, you and I were talking before the show in, in terms of kind of like what the, the history has been in the hobby. And, you know, I've, I've been keeping reef tanks for, for many, many years. And, I've had a lot of success using metal halides and uh, T5s as a combination, but um, you know it seems like LEDs are certainly the most popular form of aquarium lighting out there um, today. How how have you um, kind of seen the evolution of aquarium lighting from you know the, uh, the the VHO, the T5s, the metal halides, and now it seems the predominant um, form of aquarium lighting being used are LEDs. When I got started in the hobby, the big debate was fluorescent lamps or metal halide. And uh, I actually built my own uh, reflector that it was metal halides and the, uh, the actinic tubes. So uh, that eventually caught on. Um, you know, there was a time that metal halides were considered a poison to corals uh, because we didn't understand how some corals responded to too much light. Um, so, you know, we went through that phase where it was fluorescence or metal halide and both would work. Uh, I, I went to work at the coral farm and we used strictly metal halide lamps, 400 watt uh, Iwasaki 6500K lamps over the coral bats. Um, then in, uh, it was about 2000 or so, a fellow, uh, built a, a little LED module that he sent to me to, to test. And he was wondering if they would work for aquariums. 
So that got my interest started in LEDs. Uh, I, I built uh, my own LEDs for a while, and then uh, PFO came out with their uh, Solaris Luminaire in the, gosh, I don't know, what was that, 2005, 2006, something like that. So uh, one thing we're seeing now is uh, some people are actually migrating back to the metal halide lamps, which, you know, is perfectly fine. Um, there's no such thing as a best lamp or best light. Um, if you if you look at the uh, spectral absorption characteristics of you know say green algae versus brown algae versus red algae, uh, they're they're different. Um, it, as far as the light intensity goes, um, uh, you know, the corals are highly adaptable there, uh, and of course we see that with both intensity and uh, uh, the quality of light that they receive. So, so Dana, why, um, why do you think um, manufacturers? Well, let me let me um, start this off differently. So, you're, you're you're according to what you're seeing, metal halides are, are starting to gain some more popularity. Why why do you think that is? And then, secondly, how come the manufacturers are not kind of following that? potential trend, right? I mean, um, very few manufacturers these days offer up a, um, an all-in-one metal halide hood. Yeah, there, there are some available. I, I believe um, Reef Bright offers yep. uh, uh, metal halide fixtures. Uh, I don't know if Sunlight Supply is still in business. I know they were yeah. offering some luminators as well. Geisman, right? Yeah, yeah, um, right. Um, I, I think one of the things with LEDs is uh, these lights can be very, very powerful. They can produce more light than a metal halide lamp can in certain situations, and it depends on the optics used on the LEDs. And Also, you've got a very focused light. Uh, the metal halides tend to make a broad spectrum, and not all of that light is usable in photosynthesis where most of the LEDs that are used, uh, you know, they, there's not, not much waste light to those. And, and that's something else that really needs to be investigated more is uh, how, how these uh, corals respond to this almost laser-like focused uh, uh, spectral quality. Are, um, is that why we're seeing uh, diffusers being added to LED fixtures to kind of help even that spread a little bit and, and eliminate hotspots? Uh, yeah, you know, that definitely would, would help um, get rid of the disco effect. Uh, I think that's what it's called. Uh, personally, that doesn't bother me any, but some people don't like it. Um, yeah, but if, if it doesn't come with a diffuser, um, you know, you really, really need to be careful. I, I just tested the light recently that... Uh, the light was nine inches off the surface of the water, and at full intensity, I was getting almost a thousand par at the bottom of the tank. It's at like seventeen inches, and wow. uh, you <clears throat> you you don't want to do that, in my opinion. I mean, that's unless you're looking for great color on your corals, and the coral can take that amount of light. You know, you're you're really getting in the danger zone where you can over illuminate. So. What I would recommend uh, is, and most everybody knows this, I, I hope, uh, is to get some sort of light measuring device. And uh, this happens to be from Neptune Systems. If you've got a, uh, an Apex, Neptune Apex, uh, this uh, you can get the module. And I think, I think this is like 300 bucks. Um, if that doesn't work for you, uh, I highly recommend uh, this. Uh, of course, this is portable and it can go from tank to tank. Uh, this is an Apogee MQ510 uh, par meter. Um, so, what is what does that one retail for? Do you know? This one, I think this is like $590. Yeah. Um, no, it's $538. $538. <clears throat> Yeah, the, uh, the Neptune Apex is right at three hundred, and uh, this one is five thirty-eight. What would you say is a um, is a good 
zone. If you wanted to keep like an SPS dominant tank, let's let's start with that for um, for par. What would you say is a good range for par for an SPS dominant tank? Uh, at the bottom of the tank, uh, you probably want to have a par of about 200. Um, and if you're looking to promote some of the coloration, uh, you know, the sky's the limit. Uh, we were growing some of the purple monster acroporas back in the 90s under a par value of like uh, eight or 900. And, wow. Uh, yeah, so we were really blasting them with light. Of course, they were solid purple too. I mean, they, they really colored up well. Um, one of the issues that we have is if you just measure the par, I mean, if you've got a, a lighting system that's on a timer and it just comes on and off like a metal halide or a fluorescent lamp that's not dimmable, um, you know, just measuring par, um, if your system can ramp up and down, uh, you know, it, you, you've got three options. You can either sit there all day with a par meter and take measurements every 10 minutes, you know, and record that intensity. Um, with the with the Neptune device, it will spit out an average at the end of the day. And same thing with the uh, Apogee meter. Uh, this can calculate something that's called the, the daily light integral. And I've got a little sign here to try. I don't know. Can you see that? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Oh, the you you determine the DLI by measuring the uh, PPFD or the photosynthetic photon flux density uh, as and is reported as micromole per square meter per second times the number of seconds in the photo period and then you divide by one million and you arrive at uh, mole photons per square meter per photo period. And I've got some numbers here. When I was in Hawaii, I don't know, can you see the bottom of the page yeah. there? <clears throat> yep. Uh, the, this was at uh, uh, Kahalu Beach Park, which was about a mile from my house. And uh, this was in shallow water. It was anywhere from three to five feet, uh, depending on the tide. And these were the numbers that I arrived at. The November DLI was 16. February was 22, and late spring, early summer was 30. Now, if we do our algebra backwards here, uh, the DLI of 16 is uh, an average of 370 micromole uh, for the photo period. The uh, 22 uh, DLI is 509 micromole. And the uh, 30 is 694 micromole. So it's obvious that we can match the amount of light in an aquarium. And so, you know, that's one reason you need to be careful, especially with some of these LEDs that uh, have these lenses that really focus the light. Um, I'm growing, a, it's called a strawberry shortcake acropora yep. in, in my tank. And it's, it's in the bottom of the aquarium it's in like uh, 18 19 inches of water and um, it's growing very well at 200 micromole um, and uh, the DLI works out to be seven so it's just a fraction of you know the light that's available even to a shallow water coral uh, in Hawaii so anyway uh, Bottom line is, is try to maintain that 200 at the bottom of the tank for SPS. Um, and, you know, it, it, the rest of it just depends on the depth of the tank and that sort of thing. But, um, like I say, be careful. You don't want to put a shallow coral up at, at the top in an aquarium that has that much light at the bottom. They're going to cook it. So, um, you know, it really depends uh, on, on what you want to keep. But in, in general, if you've got a branching coral that's going to do some self-shading, uh, give it at least 200 micromole. Yeah, you know, one of the other things that, um, you know, I've heard just anecdotally in terms of people that have been using LEDs and potentially are considering a switch back is that um, I think they're being a little inconsistent in terms of 
changing up the settings too often. And I, and I know one thing with, um, with an SPS dominant tank, or even with L LPS, but more specifically SPS, is that um, they love stability, right? So if, if you're kind of tinkering mm -hmm. a lot with LEDs and, and changing the intensity or changing the spectrum, that can't be good, right? You know, I've had several discussions about this. I, I suspect that people will kill their corals. Uh, maybe they're at work and they're bored and they get on their phone and start playing around with the intensity and the spectrum and the photo period and all that sort of stuff. You know, just set it, get 200 at the bottom, live with whatever you've got at the top and, and make proper placement of the corals and uh, leave it alone. You know, don't, don't change it. Uh, I mean, if you do, uh, you know, do so maybe 5% a month and, you know, keep a close eye on your corals and make sure that they're responding in a positive manner. See, it's so easy with metal halides and T5s, right? You just turn them on and there you go. There's no options. <laughs> That's right. No options to tinker. Um, so, Dana, let me, um, let's, uh, let's sneak in a question or two here from the folks that are watching. And um, okay. so we have um, we have one question, and um, I'm going to mispronounce this uh, this uh, handle or whatever you call it, this username, uh, Ikta Yo Stuff. <laughs> I apologize. I apologize if I got that wrong. But uh, can a reef just be run on blue light? Um, is white light? just for our eyes. What effects does UV have um, a coral color and growth? Yeah, that's, uh, let's start with the, that last question, the, the UV uh, growth. Uh, I was just talking to Tulio today at Reef Bright, and uh, he's gonna make me some uh, strictly UV LEDs. Uh, that's one of the projects that, that I want to examine. Um, I'm also working on an article right now that examines the, what, what we know about the effects of uh, uh, UV and violet light on coral coloration. Now, this, if you want to run strictly blue light, um, all I've got to offer on that is an anecdotal experience that I had. Uh, I changed uh, strictly to actinic lighting years ago on a 110-gallon reef I had. And it was like the next day I had this vicious diatom outbreak. I, I think that's what it was. I didn't have a microscope back then. And, you know, I, I, all I know was that I had this snotty stuff all of a sudden in the aquarium. And I always thought it was due to that spectral shift. I can't prove it, but um, I, I'm certainly not going to retry that experiment in, in a display tank anytime soon. It, it may be something that I do on an experimental basis. Now, as far as the full spectrum light, um, a lot of people send me their their uh, light schedules for intensity and, and spectrum. And one thing, I, I have a little bit of heartburn about running red light, uh, whether it's out of your uh, white LEDs or or the the red LEDs. Uh, personally, I wouldn't go above fifteen percent on it. Um, it it's a it has been proven that uh, too much red light will regulate the zooxanthellae density or chlorophyll content. Um, so I'm just not a big fan of uh, a lot of red light. Um, personally, I, I run mine uh, just enough to make the clownfish appear red, and that's, that's where I leave it. So I hope that answers the questions. Yeah. All right, so we have another question from St. Nova. Um, question for you, uh, Dana. Why is it that once I bring home a brightly colored coral like an LPS, it eventually goes it eventually goes dull after a week? His, um, his nitrates are at 10, his phosphates are at 0.04. I mean, I guess that's, that's just maybe painting part of the picture in terms of the parameters, but um, we don't know what kind of um, lighting he uh, or this person is using. But... Um, any thoughts in terms of why, um, you know, you'd bring home a brightly colored coral and it uh, starts fading on you? I mean, there could be a lot of factors in play, right? Yeah, there sure are. The, uh, the fluorescent and non-fluorescent reflective proteins, um, uh, the part that actually is colorful is within a, a barrel-shaped uh, 
housing that, that protects that, that protein, colorful protein. And it doesn't take much to bend that protein out of shape. And if you bend it, it, it could increase in color or it could decrease in color. And, uh, you know, this is not strange. A, a lot of the, uh, dyes that are used in aquarium reagents, they change color with pH. Well, the same thing can happen in a coral protein. pH can affect it. Uh, metals can affect it. Um, if, if you have, say, too little of, of uh, some sort of element, uh, that could cause a shift. Um, mainly, though, it, it's going to be the light intensity and the spectral quality of, of the light. Um, I've seen some really spectacular tanks that, that are running high nitrate and phosphate levels, uh, certainly higher than I run mine. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's really hard to say. You've got to look at this on a case-by-case -case basis. And, uh, you know, it, it depends on what kind of coral it is, too. Um, some of them just don't respond to a lot of light while, while other ones love it. Yeah, no, so true. There, uh, there are just so many things in play in terms of, um, you know, corals losing colors. I mean, you could, um, you know, have similar tanks with similar parameters and, and you put a coral from one tank into that other tank and, and um, you know, it, it might lose that um, coloration in that tank with similar uh, parameters. I mean, there's just so many things going on. It's, that's kind of a hard one to uh, decipher unless you're really doing a lot of um, in-depth testing, side-by-side A-B type of testing you know, on the corals and, and keeping all the parameters and um, other conditions uh, constant and just, you know, changing one variable. But uh, that's, that kind of sounds like what uh, you do a lot of in terms of the experiments in your lab. Yes. Um, one thing I hear a lot is somebody goes to their local fish store or a friend's house and they see a setup that's really working well. And so they go home and try to replicate that. And they, they write to me and say, my tank is exactly like the one I saw at a friend's house or the store. No, no, it's not exactly. And, you know, they're asking me, well, the cor corals were great in the tank I saw, but I, I, I replicated this exactly and I'm not having any luck with it. Um, you know, you, you really got to look at things like that in depth, especially the lighting. Um, it, it, if you've used a PAR meter, you know that you may have a, a PAR value of say 400 and six inches away, it might be 250. Uh, you know, it, it depends on the type of light and the spread and the optics and all that sort of thing. So, uh, you know, when someone says that they've replicated exactly an aquarium, uh, you know, I just, I kind of bite my lip and, you know, cause that, that's impossible to do. Yeah. That's no, a challenge. All right. So Danny, in, in terms of the lab and, and, uh, testing lights, you're, you're testing, um, some of the new uh, lights that are coming out on, onto the market, uh, these days. Uh -huh. Can, can you share some of the results, um, from your lab testing with, you know, the, um, the Radeon just came out with the gen fives. There's a new, uh, Philips Coral Care, uh, gen two fixture coming out. Um, can we, uh, can we talk about some of those lights and how uh, your impressions of those lights? Yeah, the, uh, the, the Radeon, uh, the light that was sent to me to test, it was actually a, uh, an aquarium society in uh, Minnesota. Uh, they sent me two, uh, actually three lights to test. Um, I'm sorry, they sent me two. One was the Reef Breeders. Uh, I was impressed with that light. Um, uh, I liked it. Um, you know, I, I don't want to sound like I'm pushing one brand over another. I, I try to stay neutral. Um, but I think if you were to investigate lights and you decided on a reef reader, you would you would do okay with it. Um, I, I, certainly, there you know, it made enough light. And, uh, you know, it's fairly inexpensive, um, you know, compared to some of the other lights. Uh, the other one was a, uh, a Radeon generation five XR 30 pro, which is mostly for freshwater aquaria. It doesn't, it's not as heavily weighted toward the blue as the, uh, the, the other Radeon is, um, be very careful with that light. That light makes a lot of par. 
Uh, it's so if you decide to go with one of those, definitely get a far meter. Uh, if, if you crank that baby up, uh, you know, you're, you're in danger of really cooking some of your corals. Um, the Phillips Coral Care Light, um, boy, that's, uh, I understand that's, that's not the uh, light that was initially introduced in, in Europe. Um, well, it's a big, heavy light. It, it has an internal power supply on it, too. Um, you know, certainly it, uh, uh, the layout of, of the LEDs was, was very good. I like the spectral quality on it, and it'll make a lot of light. Um, so, I mean, if you decide to go with one of those, um, you know, definitely it, it'll work. Um, I'd like to see a little more testing with it. Uh, I'm not saying don't buy it because uh, I, I don't want to go down that road. I don't want to start making recommendations that uh, you know, gets me in hot water. But, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I stay I stay in hot water anyway, so I don't know what I'm worried about. <laughs> yeah, you, so I guess you can't win sometimes, right? In terms of uh, you know you're you're uh, you're you're doing I, a lot of testing and you're passing along your honest opinion, and and uh, I guess it's kind of hard to stay. Uh, stay neutral and, and, and not, um, you know, ruffle any feathers. Yeah. What, what I like to do is if somebody's going to read one of my articles, you know, they're, they're fairly serious. And I, I think that they would, uh, do their due diligence when they purchase the light. Um, so I, I give you the numbers. Um, I, I try to stay as neutral as I can. Um, you know, there, there's very, very rarely do you see a light that just doesn't cut the mustard. Um, there really aren't any bad lights out on the market. There are poor applications. Um, you, know, you, you shouldn't use a, a radion on a, a six-inch deep tank. I mean, that, that's really too much overkill. So, you know, do your homework. If, if you have any questions uh, about a spe uh, specific light, get in touch with me on Reef to Reef. And, uh, you know, we, we made PM or, you know, if I, if I think it's of enough interest, I'll, I'll go ahead and go public with it. And, uh, you know, we can discuss it and get other people's input. What, um, so I'm going to ask you about a couple other lights. And, and uh, you know, again, if, um, if you can kind of just, I guess pass along the data that you've seen the uh, the GHL um, Mitras. What do you think of the uh, those lights? You know, I don't have any experience with those. Um, you know, from what I've seen on the forums, uh, you know, a lot of people swear by them. So, um, you know, there's just so many LEDs on the market right now that um, you know, time is really a factor too. It takes about two weeks to test one of these lights. I, I got to, you know, get everything set up and gather the data, and, uh, analyze it and do all the graphs and, you know, write, write the article around that. Uh, so uh, also since I'm retired, I'm, I'm definitely on a restricted budget now. You know, at one time I could go out and buy these lights and, uh, you know, test them. Uh, but th those days are over. I'm, I'm relying on a lot of donations now to keep the lab going. Yeah, no, point well taken. I think um, I read somewhere, and, and we were talking about this, that um, you probably have, um, you said, over $100,000 worth of equipment in that lab now? Yeah, that, that's right. Of course, that's, I've been collecting lab gear since, uh, gosh, the late 80s. So I've, I've got the fluorometers and a collection of parameters and chlorophyll meters and microscopes. And, you know, I've, I've got all this stuff down there that, uh, you know, there, there's not too many projects I can't do. Um, so, yeah, time, time is a factor now. Um, if, even though I'm retired, it's amazing how busy I can manage to stay. Yeah, I bet. So, um, Dan, I missed a question before from Greg uh, Carroll, and um, Greg is is asking what. 
So what, what Greg is saying is uh, when I ran my old SPS system, I saw readings of 1100 PPFD 12 inches below the surface of the water with my sunlight supply reflectors. Can you explain why no one recommends that kind of par with the LEDs? Um, and, and what was the lighting source on that again, a metal halide? Greg, uh, what did Greg say here? Um, sunlight supply reflectors. So yeah, Greg, that was metal halides, right? Okay. I think, uh, I think he's, I think it was metal halides. Yeah. Um, of course, metal halides have a lot of green in them just, you know, by their very nature. Um, uh, some yellows. Yeah, it really depends on the makeup of the lamp. So a lot of that energy is, uh, you know, is not used in photosynthesis, even though it shows up as par. Um, whereas the LEDs, it, you know, if you're just running uh, the blues and uh, the cyans and the reds, you know, almost all that energy is going to be used in photosynthesis. So it, it's a spectral issue. And that really needs to be investigated more. And that, that's one of the projects that uh, I, I hope to be able to look at as soon, as soon as some of these fragments grow out a little bit more. Yeah, Greg said he was running um, 400 watt um, radium bulbs on that uh, in that fixture. Um, so uh, Reef uh, KPR is asking uh, what you run on your system. Uh, what sorts of lights? Yeah, what do you want run light wise? Oh Boy, let, let the death threats begin. <laughs> I'm running uh, two Refi uh, Duo Extremes on, on this aquarium. It's uh, Daniel Liu out of, uh, I think he's in Seattle. Uh, he visits Atlanta fairly often, and uh, I drove over to the other side of town and met him and uh, looked at some of his lights. Um, uh, you know, I, that's what I'm using right now. I, I use uh, some of the Noosikes for a while, uh, some of the Orfex, and I don't have anything against those lights. Uh, you know, they, they work perfectly fine on the tank. I, I've even used some of the Chinese black boxes. Um, but the, the first aquarium I set up when, when I moved back, uh, the, the first year, we've been in Georgia for three years now, and the first year we were in the curtain hanging mode, and, you know, and I had to get the lab completed. Um, so I, after about a year, I got a tank set up with uh, dry rock, and it was just a complete disaster. I, I had more problems with that tank. And it didn't help that we had a 13-inch snowstorm here, and we lost power for two days. So anyway, that tank crashed, and uh, I, I set another tank up, the, the 120 with a live rock, and cured it for five months. So that that's the reason my tank looks so young in the video I sent you. Uh, you know, she's barely a year old. Um, so, you know, I, I use some lights on, on the, the 90 gallon that I started with, and then I switched over when, when I set up the 120. So I'm, I'm not trying to imply that those lights or any of those lights are bad that I've used. It's, it's just the, uh, that's the way things shook out. The, the reef buys were at the right place at the right time. Yep. What's, uh, what's your opinion on uh, hybrid fixtures? You know, I, I was talking before about metal halides and T5s, and that's a combination that really worked well for a lot of folks um, and for myself included. But um, today you see a lot of um, people with T5 uh, LED hybrid fixtures. What, what do you think of those? I mean, obviously, you know, some LED fixtures, uh, you've got the shading that occurs and there's been improvements with the, um, you know, the advent of um, some new um, reflectors, I guess, with LED fixtures. But what, what do you, what do you, what, what's your opinion on those uh, T5 LED hybrid fixtures? Uh, you know, I think it's fine. Uh, you know, there, there seem to be multiple issues with just strictly the, the, uh, LEDs or or um, uh, metal halides when you like you say you 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 can get some hot spots for those and uh, using that fluorescent lamp uh, you get rid of some of the disco effect and uh, it, you do get a, a a better distribution of light with those where you don't have the shading over in the corners of the tanks and that sort of thing so yeah you know I I used to, I actually built my own metal halide. Uh, 
and fluorescent fixture back in, that was probably the early 90s. And that's when the debate was raging about, you know, you either use metal halides or you use the fluorescent lamps. So I just, I went ahead and built one. And um, of course it wasn't dimmable like, like some are today, but uh, you know, it worked fine. Uh, I, I would do that again if, if the situation were correct. So you talked about dim, dimmable a couple of times and um, I have never dimmed my lights because I've always had metal halides and T5s. Although I guess you, you can uh, dim certain um, metal halide T5 fixtures, um, but I've never done that. And I've never ramped up or down my lights to try to simulate sunrise and midday and, and sunset. Uh, how important is that for a, uh, for a reef tank in terms of being able to kind of ramp up a light schedule, ramp it down? Um, I, I, since I've never done it, but I've had success, doesn't mean that's the right you know, that it's okay to do that. I mean, would, would you be um, increasing your chances for success if you did that sort of thing? Um, you know, as far as the uh, dimming your lights, um, I do on the setup. I've got downstairs. I've got it programmed to, to ramp up. But that, that's mostly to showcase the, uh, the fluorescent proteins in the corals. Uh, that's the only reason I do it. Uh, you know, other than looking at the fluorescence of the corals, I, I don't think that ramping, you know, is going to do you any good. Um, as far as the, for the fishes, uh, now I'm not a fish person, okay? Um, I, I regard fish as just a nitrogen source for the corals, and that's the reason I've got them in the tank. You know, all, all the fish I've got are common. I, I'm not going to go out and spend three thousand dollars on a on a fish. It's, you Me know, neither. When, when all I want, I, I just want the nitrogen from from the fish poop to get to the corals. But they're, um, you know, I I think in some cases uh, I've heard that some fishes will will spawn at dusk. That that's the trigger for them. So that may play an important part. Uh, you know, for the fishes. But as far as the, the dimming capability, I, I think that's more for the hobbyist than it is for the coral. What about simulating uh, moonlight? Do you think that's an important thing to do? Yeah, you know, there have been some studies. Um, when I was in Hawaii, I would uh, go watch the corals spawn. And I did a lot of research on that when, when I was there. And uh, in, in some cases, uh, the moonlight... Uh, does seem to play a, a, a role as a biological clock in uh, you know in the, the the timing of the the coral spawnings, where with others uh, it it doesn't matter that the coral senses the onset of darkness and uh, that that sets the clock. So yeah, I mean um, if if you're going to use uh, Moonlight, uh, try to keep it down to a minimum. Um, I, I know, uh, you know the, the refi I have, uh, I can adjust the blue moonlight, and I, I run it about as low as you can. And uh, so, you know, it really depends. Moonlight can be an important factor. I have no idea what it might play for the fishes. I've just never looked into it. Yep. Um all right, so Dan, I have a, um, I have a, um, um, another question for you, and then I think my question dovetails pretty nicely into another question that St. Nova has. So I'm going to ask my question first, and then we'll get into St. <clears throat> Nova's question. And, and again, uh, folks, if you have a, um, a question for, uh, for Dana, feel free to, uh, to ask away. So Dana, um, can you talk about alkalinity and how important you know, that parameter is in terms of how it um, influences the rate of photosynthesis. You know, is there an optimal level of alkalinity you should strive for to kind of optimize growth and coloration, you know, especially for SPS? Yeah, there was a, there was a female scientist, Marabini, I think was her name. Uh, she did studies back, I think this was in the 80s, and she determined that alkalinity would higher alkalinity uh, played a big factor in, in promoting the, the coral growth. Um, but I, I wondered why she, she never went into the why she just said that it did. 
uh, and I was in Hawaii and uh, I did a little little one year study for a magna project and uh, using a PAM fluorometer I was able to look at the rates of photosynthesis in parietes corals at different alkalinity levels and what apparently is happening is uh, we all know that uh, plants and zooxanthellae need a fertilizer, but they also need a carbon source to, to make the sugars. And carbon dioxide can be in short supply in the ocean, so uh, corals can use alkalinity, and they convert the, the alkalinity over to a carbon dioxide uh, using an enzyme. So that is actually the carbon source that the coral can use to make the sugar. And what I found was is the, the higher the alkalinity level, the higher the rate of photosynthesis. Now, I only use parietes corals. I don't know if that applies to all corals. And I strongly suspect that the, uh, the alkalinity burn that you see on some of the acropora is due to uh, a rate of photosynthesis that is so high that it overwhelms the natural defenses that the coral has. And these oxygen radicals um, produced by photosynthesis and the hydrogen peroxides and all that sort of thing, uh, you know, overwhelms the enzymes that protects the coral and, and burns it. At least that's my opinion. Uh, I didn't have access to Acropora when I was in Hawaii. Uh, I do now. And that's something I, I want to revisit. Um, but I think the three or four experiments we've talked about now, I may not have enough years left to get all this work done because it, it takes a lot of time to go in the lab and get the protocol set up. And uh, so anyway. I, I bet. What, um, what was a, uh, what, what is like that high range of alkalinity uh, considered? Is it uh, over uh, 10 dKH or is it uh, like nine plus? Yeah, I'm, I'm running my tank right now at nine with, without any problems. Uh, I've got a uh, Neptune doser that, uh, or the, the dose pumps uh, that, that I can monitor or meter that, that into the aquarium. Um, I don't think there's, there's any real reason to, to go much higher than nine. In fact, with some of the Acropora, you get up around 12 or so. Uh, actually, I think that's... That's a little bit crazy, a little, a little dangerous. I'm not saying it won't work, but, uh, you know, I've seen too many reports of the Acropora burn when the alkalinity gets too high. And uh, I, I think it's because of those uh, factors that I mentioned that uh, the coral is actually burning its tissue up. Yeah, I um, I shoot for um, 8.5 in terms of my DKH for my SPS dominant tank, and um, I see that uh, Reef KPR is uh, running the tank at uh, 8.6, and Greg is uh, always uh, says he keeps his uh, alk on the high side. Greg, you might want to comment what that uh, that level is. I'd be curious myself. I probably asked you that when you were on the show. If I forgot. <laughs> um, so the the question from from Saint Nova. Uh, is to you, Dana, and, and this dovetails on my question about alkalinity. What, uh, what would be your ideal parameters in terms of nitrate, phosphate? We talked about alkalinity. Calcium um, mentions PAR, but we, we already kind of talked about that. For a, for a mix, this is for a mixed reef. What would, what would you uh, be shooting for in terms of those basic key parameters? Um, the tank I have is a mixed reef. I've Got a, a sarcopitin and a couple of goniaporas in it, as well as the acropora. I like a little bit of motion in the tank, so that, that's the reason I've got some of those fleshy guys in there. Um, you know, Richard Ross has has done some work with phosphorus, and you know he he doesn't get too concerned if your phosphorus levels get too high. Uh, and like I say, I've seen some tanks, uh, really nice tanks, that run fairly high phosphorus levels. Um, personally, I, I run mine. I, I think the last time I checked it, it was like 0.04 for the, uh, the that's phosphorus, not, not phosphate. And uh, the nitrate, um, I think that was 1.1 as uh, nitrate reported as just the nitrogen portion of it. Um, 
calcium. I run that at uh, 425 to 450, and I try to keep a, a natural ratio there. The higher the calcium level, the, you know, the higher your alkalinity and the higher your magnesium should be. So uh, they're, they're fairly close to where I want to be. I, I think the calcium was 425. Um, alkalinity is right at 9, maybe a tad higher. And uh, magnesium was 1,300, which was just a little bit high, too. But, uh, you know, I'm just a few milligrams off. So, um, Dan, I got, a, um, I got another question, kind of shifting gears a little bit again, in, in terms of um, coral and feeding them. So what, what, what's your opinion in terms of, or what, what um, you know, research have you done or have you done any of, uh, in terms of coral feeding with coral foods and how that potentially can impact the photosynthesis process in terms of what they're taking in from the light? Will, um, will the coral foods supplement that um, energy? You know, years ago, there, there was another big debate. Um, uh, the general thought was that the zooxanthellae will make everything that the coral needs, and hence, they don't need to feed. Where that always bothered me a little bit. It, I thought, if that's so, why do they have mouths? So uh, I do feed the tank. Um, I use the... Uh, that is Refroids, and there's a product from, uh, that's Polyp Lab. Uh, I also use, uh, it's a Fauna Marin, I, uh, Marine, I can't think of the name of their product right offhand, but it's another powdered food. Uh, I add amino acids, uh, that's from Polyp Lab, and uh, then I feed the fish heavily. I've got an auto feeder on it that, that feeds them twice a day. And then I'll go down and, and every time I go downstairs, which is probably three or four times a day, I'll feed them when I go down there as well. So there's, there's a lot of fish poop in the tank. Uh, and since I started with live rock, uh, there's a very healthy copepod population in the tank. And uh, if I don't scrape the glass, uh, you know, I, the glass, it looks like it's got a little bit of snow on it. There, there's so many copepods there. So, uh, I, I feed the corals and the fishes heavily. And I, I think that's important, uh, you know, especially if uh, since the uh, the colorful proteins are are just that a protein, they're going to need a nitrogen source. So I try to make sure they get it. Do you think it's important to um, uh, use coral food at a certain time of the day, and also turn off your skimmer while you're feeding the coral food? You know, I, I don't. Uh, I also feed green water, and uh, I've got filter socks in the sump. Uh, you know, I, I don't go to any special trouble to turn the skimmer off. Um, you know, I'm very happy with the coral growth I'm getting. And I really don't see any reason to, to you know. And, and uh, time, time of day, does it matter in terms of feeding coral? Well, you know, at, at one time, uh, you know, a lot of corals, uh, if, if you've got Charlie Barron's software, one of the identification factors of corals is, are, are the polyps open at night or, or the day? And uh, there are some specialized feeders. Some corals only have their polyps out at night, extended to feed. Um, but if you've got a tank where your polyps are, you know, the coral polyps are out all day long, it might be best to feed them in the morning uh, and uh, let them digest uh, the, the food particles where they've got the nitrogen and phosphorus to use during the day when they're illuminated. It's just an opinion. I, I mean, I haven't done any real studies on that, but to me it makes sense. So um, you... Um you spurred another question on in my head that, um, and it, this is a non-lighting question, but you mentioned uh, that you use live rock. Have you always uh, used live rock for your tanks? You know, I, I did uh, back in the, you know, the 80s and 90s when you can still get the Florida live rock. Um, you know, that's, that's what I used up until the time I moved to Hawaii. And, uh, of course, I could collect the live rock there, uh, you know, the... There, there was no problem with that. In some of the experimental tanks, uh, I used live rock. 
So when I moved back to Georgia, um, I bought a used aquarium and it, it came with uh, the dead rock. And uh, yeah, a lot, it works for a lot of people. I'm not going to knock it, but uh, personally, I like the the um, biodiversity that you get with the, the live rock. You know, I've got sea squirts and, and spaghetti worms and uh, the uh, copepods came in with the rock. So, yeah, I, personally, I like live rock. I don't think I'll ever set up another tank with uh, uh, dry rock, but that, that's just based on my one bad experience with, with the dry rock. Yeah, same same thing happened with me. I, I've been using um, live rock for all of my tanks over all the years. And then about five years ago, my 187-gallon tank, I decided to uh, just set it up with dry rock only. And, and uh, you know, I had one problem after another. And, and uh, you know, again, I'm, I'm not going to knock it either because I know a lot of people have had uh, great success with dry yeah. rock um, from, from scratch. But, um, you know, for my new tank build, that I'm going to be starting this um, – you know, September, uh, I'm going to be using um, live rock as well because I do like the biodiversity. And I do believe that you can um, get that tank going quicker in terms of having it SPS ready versus a dry rock only tank. Maybe some people out there would argue argue uh, differently, but then, you know, that's, that's kind of based on my own experience and, and my comfort level. I like the calcareous algae too. I, I like the color that that lends to a tank. Uh, Yep. A lot a lot of people that come over don't realize the corals are alive and they think the, the live rock is actually what, a, you know, the coral is. So, um, you know, I like it. They like it. So everybody's happy. Yeah. All right, Dana, we're um, we're coming up on an hour here in terms of the uh, the show. And, and um, I got one last question for you about um, LED lighting. And, and, and folks, this is your last uh, opportunity here to, to ask Dana a question. But but, you know, my question, Dana, in terms of LED fixtures, and, and I'm going to be using one with my new tank build, you know, the, the technology just changes so quickly, you know. So after how many years should you really be considering getting a new LED fixture? You know, if you buy an LED fixture, is it like after three or four years pretty much obsolete? Or if it's working for you and um, there is a new shiny toy out there, is it is it uh, just fine to hold on to it? I mean, I know there's... It takes many, many years for the LED lights to uh, degrade, right, in terms of the, their intensity and, and what have you. So that's, I guess, not really what I'm asking. My question is that, um, you know, it's just the technology is just changing so much, and there's, just, there's so much innovation with, uh, with that uh, type of lighting. It, does it, um, you know, will you have to reinvest in a few years with LED lights? No, it really depends. Uh... I saw Jack Kent at uh, one of the Atlanta um, coral swaps, and he sent me a paper after we discussed the LED lighting. And uh, this paper went into great detail about things that will degrade LED lights. Humidity can do it. Uh, moisture, if your fans go out, uh, you know, the heat is, is going to get to that LED. Um, the LED after a while, the, the housing can crack on it. Um, it you know, if, if you keep it cool and, and keep the moisture out of it, and, uh, you know, probably the, uh, the only real issue you're going to have is your power supply is going to go out. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it depends. But under the right conditions, I, I don't think that there's any reason that you can't get the 50,000 hours or... 60,000 hours out of an LED light. Of course, they don't last forever, but, but then no light does. Right. Yep. It's a big investment, that's for sure, you know, versus um, other types of lights out there. <clears throat> All right. Well, listen, Dana, I want to thank you so much again. Do you have any uh, final thoughts for the folks watching out there? Um, yeah. If you have any questions, get in touch with me on uh, Reef to Reef. Uh, I'll be glad to get to those when I can. Some days I get absolutely snowed under and I, I just can't get to them. Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, you, you, uh, an email or a message will get lost in the, the shuffle. Uh, remind me, but uh, I'll do my best to get back with you. And, uh, you know, if, if you've got any issues, maybe we can get them sorted out. All right, Dana. Well, listen, thanks again, man, for, uh, for being a guest. I really appreciate it. And I'm sure, you know, the folks really uh, enjoyed the, uh, the conversation that we had. And, and you can certainly um, put, 
put some uh, other questions in the comments below on this live stream, or like Dana said, you can reach out to him on, on Reef to Reef. So I uh, just want to remind folks, my next show is going to be uh, next Thursday, August 6th, and this one's going to be at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and my guest is going to be Chad Clayton from Reef Nutrition, so I hope you tune in for that show. So until then, be safe out there and, and uh, be well. Dana, take care. All right. Thank you.